This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. We proudly welcome artist Samantha Sherry as our sponsor on the How to Love Lit podcast. Sam is a world-class artist specializing in animal portraits. We invite you to check out her work at samanthasherry.com. Tell her Christian Gary sent you. Again, samanthasherry.com. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. Today's episodes go through chapters 9 through 12, and we'll watch Golding blow up the world in The Lord of the Flies. episode is titled The End of Innocence, something uh, of a cliched saying and a phrase I'm not really that much of a fan of, but it's the phrase that Golden uses, so we'll go with it. But before we do, I want to comment on our videos. If you don't follow us on Instagram or Facebook, we want to invite you to do that. Last month, we took you in our video to downtown Memphis and showed you a bit of our city, our famous Beale Street. But this month, we featured another cool element of our city, and it kind of relates to Lord of the Flies, and that is barbecue. Memphis is super famous for its barbecue, or at least we tell ourselves that. Uh, In May, we have a world-famous barbecue fest where people come from all over the world, literally in teams, to compete to be the world champion of barbecue cooking. And so we shot a little clip inside one of our favorite barbecue joints, Central Barbecue on Central Avenue. Yeah, don't read too much symbolism into it. This book is going to get really deep and really heavy, really fast. So it's just an attempt to kind of lighten the mood. We want to start with the image of a good set of grilled ribs. Not trying to desecrate anything, but there is a lot of pig consumption in the book. And... There can be no debating the fact that these boys do not know how to do a proper barbecue because that takes civilization years to perfect and Memphis has come arguably close to perfecting it. Do you agree? 
Well, Memphis, I'll tell you what, has never made the top 10 list for healthiest eating cities in America, and that's not really a badge of honor, but (laughs) I do enjoy those ribs. All right, so back to the book. Today, we finished a book by looking at chapters 9 through 12. So, Christy, how are we going to break it down? Of course, we do want to break it down chapter by chapter. I think we're going to start with chapter 9. We're going to look at it alone because it's definitely the climax of the book. Now, if you're still in school, uh, I'm sure you remember Freytag's Pyramid. Around here, we teach it every single year. It's the idea that a story uh, progresses from exposition, where you meet the characters in the setting, to a rising action, where you have a series of complications, to a climax, where there's usually a reversal of sorts, You have a falling action, often a catastrophe, which we definitely have in this book. And then what we have is a denouement or a resolution where the reader finally can reach a sense of catharsis. In other words, this emotional relief and you feel okay about the book ending. Now, this structure was created by a German man named Freytag in his book Techniques of Drama and was originally intended to be used to analyze Greek and Shakespearean drama. Uh, Nowadays, and we'll see some of these in other books that... A lot of authors try to defy this traditional structure. Sometimes they want to leave the reader in this state of tension when they leave the story. However, Golding uses this very traditional structure, and we can see it unfold very traditionally. And when we get to chapter 9, we're going to have this very strong climax. And remember, a climax may or may not be the most exciting point in the book, but it's the place where you reach this place where the protagonist cannot go back, the point of no return. And of course, we're going to see that here. Chapters 10 through 12, we're going to see a reversal of fortune. And our hero or protagonist is going to fare fairly poorly. There's going to be a catastrophe. And then at the very, very end, we have a very quick resolution where we get to take a breather before we finally end the book. Thematically, uh, we've kind of introduced the idea there are basically three approaches to looking at this book, politically, psychologically, and then there's a bit of psychology or theology in there too. Uh, and we see these perspectives kind of crisscross and emerge here at the end in a very complex kind of way um in the second episode we kind of took a detour and we talked about Hobbes and the natural man this political perspective and this argument that Hobbes had years ago that man needs to have civilization in order to really have a sense of right and wrong uh in the second episode we also uh introduced the idea of where does evil come from another kind of really heavy question uh that he introduced with the beast and we talked about how it's all people think that the beast or evil comes from the other guy so to speak uh or from the outside the outside uh and cold in the cold war you know the west said well the evil empire is russia and in world war ii the evil came from hitler but golding isn't satisfied with these explanations and for good reason he himself was a soldier And as a soldier, he saw that evil wasn't just on the other side. Uh, He saw it uh, as coming from within, which is kind of a psychological Jungian kind of idea. The shadow. Yes, but it's also a a biblical idea. And Golding kind of reflects this right here in this chapter 
through this character of Simon. Simon uh, is really the only character who understands that evil is not outside, but it's in the essence of man himself. Uh, Golding saw it in himself, and I think he was kind of scared of himself, and he called himself a monster all the way until his own death. First of all, um, I like the pronunciation of your French word up here, denouement. Is that how you said that? Denouement. Denouement. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. With that bit of sophistication, let's jump into chapter nine, which is titled A View to a Death. Uh, To give you the quick overview of the story, and then I want to get into some psychological terms and some events that go on. Uh, There's a storm coming on the island. Uh, Simon has had his revelation that the beast is really just the dead parachutist. And his, his comment was, the beast was harmless and horrible, and the news must reach the others as soon as possible. So Simon is coming back to the group to tell them that the beast is not anything to be feared and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and on his way back, the others are gathered in a group. Jack is still resting control of the uh, group away from Ralph. And in a discussion with the tribe, he is telling him, I give you meat and I protect you from the beast. Join my tribe. He has other comments where he's talking to Ralph and he says, the conch doesn't count at this end of the island. In other words, whatever government you have over there, it's a new world order over here where I am on this end of the island. Uh, Then they're going to do the dance, which we're going to talk about, and the chant. And then there's the storm, and Simon wanders into the middle of this frenzied pig dance. And whether the the people and the the young guys in the doing the dance were aware that that was Simon or not gets left open to interpretation. But the end result is they fall upon him in a frenzied mob and kill him. That's it exactly. So let's kind of take it apart. Uh, First, looking at Simon. When I read some of the comments that Golding made about what he was trying to do in the book, he points out himself that uh, Simon was designed or created to be a Christ figure, which I didn't really understand because when I think of a Christ figure, I think of a person who's coming to redeem the world. Uh, But that's that's not the sense that Golding is using it here. The way he wants us to understand Simon is Simon is a Christ figure in the sense that he is bringing good news. Uh, He's going to come and announce to the boys the truth about the beast, which is also another uh, biblical word. Uh, Of course, if you're a biblical scholar, that will be familiar to you as well. So he's coming down kind of from the mountain, kind of from the church, this exalted place. uh, And he comes into this place where Jack uh, has created his own authority. And the, the words are said this, power lay in the brown swell of his forearms, authority sat on his shoulder and chattered in his ear like an ape, which I find a very interesting turn of phrase because there's going to be, a, first of all, a lot of animal Im- imagery throughout the end of the book as, as the guys are trying to get more and more savage. But power and authority are very human concepts. They're very totalitarian concepts. And power and authority laying on his shoulder is also another biblical reference, referencing Christ the King. So you see this confusing 
use of theology. So you have one guy making himself a Christ and this other Christ figure coming in. And Simon has the truth. The truth is the beast is a parachuter. It's not from the outside. Just like the message of Jesus was the beast was not from the outside either. That through faith in him and this internal uh, connection to God, you can you can have another life. This is kind of what Goldeen is trying to say through the character of Simon. But what happens? Simon comes out uh, where he is after, from the place where he's heard from the worth of God, voice of God, and they attack him. And the language in this part is so appalling; it really is gross. Uh, it says this: they attacked him using their teeth uh, and their claws. Now, of course, we don't have claws. Animals have claws. And this is repugnant. They don't kill them with stones or spears, but they use their bare hands and they use their teeth. It's personal. It's horrific. And again, at this point, and I never want to take, you know, Nobel Prize winners to task, (laughs) but it kind of offends me that Golden uses this animal imagery because uh, animals don't do this. This is a sense, there's a sheer malevolence for no reason. And I'm not a biologist, and I know that, you know, maybe hyenas, sharks, hippopotamuses, they can kind of do things that are uh, undefensible and maybe um, malevolent. But hurting people for no reason is a human thing that is very much what we see going on here. He also uses the phrases gnashing of teeth instead of, you know, why is he bring up teeth and the gnashing of teeth? Well, I'm going to suggest, because we see it with all the rest of the biblical language, that he wants to say they're not acting like animals. They're acting like fiends from hell itself. This is a vision of hell that we see here on this island. Uh, what, what are your thoughts? Uh, the complete breakdown of human order and human restraint. And it's interesting that he uses the ape analogy when he talks about power because an ape whispering in your ear about power, an ape is not a monkey. An ape is not a small animal. An ape is the huge, big variety of that species. And they're very strong and they're very powerful and very overwhelming. So that was a really interesting choice of animal that he had whispering in Jack's ear about power. But there's several things that go on with this group, too. Um, first of all, there's the idea of a de-individuation, which is this loss of your own self-awareness when, um, when, you, are in your, when you lose your identity, when you're in a group. The group breaks down your, your sense of personal responsibility. So the frenzy starts with attacking Simon. And why is there not one boy out of that whole tribe that said, no, I'm not going to do that? I'm going well, to restrain. I found that interesting too. It's almost like Jack knew how to create a scenario where he could totally control them in a unified way. And he does it uh, through the dance and through the chanting. And 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 these are, I guess, tribal things. I, I, I was remembering. Well, they are. And they help create a sense of otherness. They help create a sense of, of uh, an in-group and an out-group. As a matter of fact, when Hitler starts to have success in Nazi Germany, one of the first things he does is establish this very principle through uniforms 
through flags, through pageantry, through symbolism, he creates an us, an in-group and an out-group. In other words, he, he was very purposeful in distinguishing the otherness of anybody that didn't agree, and that was by design. And so the idea is, if you think about that moral um, theory, the idea of identifying with the group is the most important level of the high, moral hierarchy that supersedes right and wrong, justice, any other thing that you would call into check? Well, it can, depending on the circumstances. Uh, and that's what uh, the subtext of this whole book is so interesting, is the idea of democracy versus totalitarianism, and which form can actually survive and work out. Because when you're in a group, you can also have something called the bystander effect, and that's the tendency to be less helpful when other people are present. Say, for instance, you see somebody fall down out in public, if you're the only one that witnesses it, you're much more likely to go help. If 10 people witness it, they'll all stand around and look at each other waiting for somebody else to take the leadership role in that kind of stuff. Well, nobody helps Simon. And, and he does leave it open-ended. At first, they think it's the beast. But I'm convinced, after reading this section a couple times, that they become aware. They hear his words. They know who it is. And they're just so relved up into this frenzy that they absolutely, absolutely don't care. And of course, uh, he's murdered in a very cruel way. And it's also important to notice that we have um, nature, kind of like you know, in the Scarlet Letter, we had nature reacting. Mm-hmm. Nature reacts to this too. Uh, in stories, it's a literary device called the pathetic fallacy. A pathetic fallacy is when you attribute human emotions to nature itself. We see it a lot in poetry, but in novels, a lot of times, the setting reflects what's going on and the story and the setting is is reacting in a very strong way almost an apocalyptic way through the it, island storm yes kind of uh there's a reference here to what happened when they crucified jesus uh in the book of matthew and, the, and when jesus is crucified in the biblical account there is an earthquake and the earth itself rocks and it shatters and this is the same thing that you're going to see here uh with the death of simon it's violent uh, with the earth itself reacting in a harsh and a strong way. There's auditory imagery, there's visual imagery, there's flashes of light. And of course, his body, uh, a line of, uh, of his cheek is silvered and turned and it's sculpted marble and it goes out to sea. And now, the next day, they all have to face what they've done. Or not face what they've done. Well, and who wants to do that? Well, in, in the, the crime at this point is so overwhelming that they are in a state of cognitive dissonance. And some of them can't believe it even happened. Uh, some doubt potentially that it did. Although in the back of their mind, they know that it, that it did happen. And uh, so this, this dissonance is holding two or more incompatible thoughts at the same time. Comes into their minds the next morning and they're trying to resolve it as we go into chapter 10. And I don't know because I've never been a soldier, but I can imagine that it would be a difficult thing to wake up the next day and have to have to realize that I want to be a good person. I think of myself as a good person, but in a moment of frenzy, I did something that I can't imagine myself doing. And of course, that's what uh, Ralph, Piggy, and Sam and Eric and kind of do. One note along those lines, there are many clinical psychologists that would suggest that PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, is that tension. You take somebody who's lived an ordinary life, you put them in a combat situation where they do things they've never been capable of, 
And the PTSD is a result of them not being able to reconcile who they thought they were in their old life versus who they were during that event. And this discussion at the beginning of chapter 10 is very much, basically they, they're all saying, I didn't do it, I mm-hmm. didn't do it. Uh, on our side of the island, so you have these boys that are really struggling with what it means to be a moral person, and I don't want to say that I did this because there's something in me that wants to be virtuous. Then you have on the other side of the island, these Hobbesian, really natural men. There we see no moral moral morality in them. They don't. They seem to have no sense of what right and wrong is at all. They're fighting to compete for resources. They're fighting out of fear. They're looking for glory. They're doing all the things that Hobbes says a natural man does in his uncontrolled state. So you see these two groups of people. And our guys, I'm going to say our guys are like Ralph and Piggy. Oh, the good guys. <laughs> yeah, the, the good, good guys. Okay. You know, they're, <laughs> they're trying to hold out and to what degree they can. I'm not sure even they know because they begin to realize that they can't remember. They try to play around in their minds with remembering what home was like. Uh, and they they just can't. They also can't remember what they're supposed to be doing with the fire, which is their connection to home. And now and they they compromise about it. Should we we can't keep it open? Why do we have to keep that fire up anyway? Oh, we'll just do it during the day. And all of this stuff is getting hazier and hazier and hazier uh, in their minds uh, throughout the next day. I do want to point out one more thing, which I kind of think is funny. Oh. It, funny, okay. Let's see if we can well, work funny in at this point. <laughs> well, they're talking about the role of the fire, um, the double function of the fire. One of them was to keep them warm, and the other one uh, is to call for help. And this, of course, is the complex symbolism of fire throughout the book. And then uh, Golding throws in this line, Ralph dredged in his fading knowledge of the world. And he says this, we might get taken prisoners by the Reds. What the heck? <laughs> I guess the communists are going to swoop down on the island and get them. That's how the talk about. I don't. You can't really use this word in novels. But talk about breaking of the fourth wall. He's like <laughs> talking to the audience to kind of let you know I'm talking about totalitarian people yeah. like the communists. He kind of breaks through the story to come out to the big big world to remind us that this is an allegory this is a mythology this is something larger than just boys on an island and of course um that only happens the one time we continue this discussion and then the main part of chapter 10 is the attack jack attacks he reminds us that this is about totalitarianism um we have to remember that he really wrote this book because of his experiences with totalitarianism. And I think it's important to take a historical uh, detour here. Tell us about totalitarianism in the 20th century and what is it that made him so afraid about what we're fixing to read? Well, it's a good point. We have to remember that he writes this book in the 50s um, in the midst of several really important forces during that time period. And I want to give you a perspective to help you understand why it's important that we understand the author's life. Like right now in the United States, if you are entering your senior year of high school, every child that's a senior in high school this year was born after September 11th, 2001. So they have no experiential memory of an event that really changed the United States dramatically. 
Um, the Berlin Wall fell an entire generation ago. We have people who are adults with college degrees out in the working force raising families that were not on this planet when the Berlin Wall came down. Meaning that they're looking at the world a very different way. They are. And so Golding is the exact opposite of that. Golding is in the height of what well, he got through World War II, which is an epic battle between democracy and fascism and communism. It was a three-sided ism war. Okay, And as soon as World War II subsides, then we have the communist Red Scare worldwide. And by 1949, even China has become communist. And so we see totalitarianism still on the march, even after a world war. And why is it important? I want to just say that totalitarianism is very different from monarchy. People in Europe have experienced lots of monarchies, but even monarchies were subject to parliaments and nobles and groups that had a say-so and had to be placated. Very, very few kings ever experienced any kind of totalitarian authority. When we get in the 20th century and we combine fascism and communism, we see two new forms of government that are totalitarian and never existed before that Golding was looking at. And um, Which is why he says, we might get taken prisoner by the Reds. Could be, yes. Um, so, And I want to point this out, too, that in 1940, when Golding's a young man, uh, Britain is the only democracy left in Europe. France has fallen. Hitler has taken over all of Central Europe. There is no democracy. The United States will not get involved in World War II for another year and a half. If you lived in Britain in 1940, you fully understood we're it. We're like Ralph. We have been abandoned by every other source on the island, and we are the only voice of democracy left against everybody in the entire world at that point. And so he translates that into the story, I feel like. And so Golding felt, and he knew the cultural isolation, and he projects it on a Ralph, I think. And so in Golding's lifetime, to put this in perspective, we're going to look at, i got a few stats we're going to look at. And if you all would care to look at these stats, you can go um, to the University of Hawaii at the hawaii.edu address um, to an article called Power Kills. And what it is, is it's, um, it's a summary of tables and information about the number of people worldwide who've been killed by totalitarian governments. Just during this decade. Just from 1900 up till like 1987, okay? okay? Which is Golding's lifetime, the vast majority of it, okay? To give you one big number to start off with, during that time period, these tables and this information can attribute civilian deaths, let alone war casualties, of up to 262 million people at the hands of their own totalitarian governments. So their governments are killing them. This isn't war. This is a government killing yes. its own people. This is the Soviet Union, Communist China, Nazi Germany, militarist Japan, the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia, Communist Vietnam. Uh, those account for like 90% of the murders during, during this century. And it's a new phenomenon because in the times of monarchies, you did not have monarchs committing mass murder of their own people on scales like that. So Golding has a real legitimate psychological fear. I mean, 262 million people murdered during this time period. The population of the United States is about 360 to 365 million. So just imagine two-thirds of everybody you know in the United States being killed by the government. So the cautionary tale is Jack is the totalitarian. And what he does at the end of chapter uh, 10 is he takes the glasses... 
And he goes by the title The Chief. He doesn't mm. even go by his own name anymore. The Chief does this. And with the stealing of the glasses, he establishes himself as really a total ruler of this island. And he makes himself into his own propaganda. He paints his face. He takes on a new title. Uh, he just he creates an old image, and he's able to step away from the person he really was. And, of course, in Chapter 11... Uh, Ralph takes Piggy, and of course he's blind, and they get the conch, uh, kind of like this last, uh, um, uh, this class pull or cross push to have civilization, and they're going to go over there and try to confront uh, Jack and kind of bring him out of this totalitarian state back to this other side. And if you know your World War II history, you understand that confronting the totalitarian dictators with the uh, democratic ideas doesn't usually work very well. No, and they try to make this appeal to morality. What's right is right. It's fair. Uh, And, of course, this is their thinking, and and they kind of have... They thought they had hope, but you can see that they're losing hope as as they go go along, and they're forgetting uh, what it is that they were... And they're also realizing what they're up against. They know that they're going to be painted. Uh, they know that this paint liberates them into savagery. They know that they don't... These aren't the little boys that were, that were in the choir in, in the Garden of Eden there at the beginning of the book. And I, may, I want to make one comment about these forms of government to help apply it right here. One of the main significant differences between a democracy and a totalitarian state is that a democracy by design is inefficient. It works to keep power from being centralized, but it also has the idea that it invites the middle and the lower class to participate in government. The totalitarian government, especially somebody like Adolf Hitler, wanted a mass. They wanted a de-individuated mass not concerned with personal rights. And that's what Jack's become at this point. And I also notice that he has minions that are more than yes. happy to execute his violence. Like this Roger guy, like he's chomping at the bits. You know, you see this, not everyone is as evil as everyone else. There's variations of it. And I think this is more than a dichotomy of Ralph versus Jack. I think what's more interesting is all these other little boys that are going along to whatever limited degree they see. And when they get here, we're going to see this bizarre uh, introduction of a new character in this chapter. Uh, when they get up there, they got this guy who has not been involved in the store, the story at all, Wilfred, and they're like beating him up for no reason. They're whipping him, <laughs> and they have him tied up. Yeah, with, with no explanation as to why. And the people who are carrying out the punishment don't know why either. They have a discussion. Why are we doing this? We don't know. It doesn't matter. Yeah, Jack said the yeah. chief has spoken. The chief has spoken. So um, they go up there, and of course, uh, Ralph begins to address the group. Um, What is better, law or rescue or hunting and breaking things? Jack is yelling. Piggy, poor little thing, he he just kind of holds the conch, thinking that it means something. And while he does this, Roger, and it says this, with a sense of delirious abandonment, leans all of his weight onto a lever. 
And then the monstrous red thing bounded across the neck and he flung himself flat while the tribe shrieked, meaning he took every bit of effort that he had and he got this boulder and he just pushed it. And the rock struck Piggy, a glancing blow from the chin to knee. The conch exploded into a thousand white fragments and ceased to exist. Piggy, saying nothing with no time for even a grunt, traveled through the air sideways from the rock, turning over as he went. The rock bounded twice and was lost in the forest. Piggy fell 40 feet and landed on his back across that square red rock in the sea. His head opened and stuff came out and turned red. Piggy's arms and legs twitched a bit, again another animal image, like a pig's after it had been killed. Then the sea breathed again in a long, slow sigh. The water boiled white and pink over the rock, and when it went, sucking back again, the body of Piggy was gone. That's sad. Oh, more than sad. It's brutal. <laughs> and and Roger does the killing. Yes, and of course, Jack is going to bound out from the tribe and scream wildly. There, and he said, there isn't a tribe for you anymore. The conch is gone. And even he knows that the conch is a symbol of civilization, meaning mm-hmm. there's nothing left. It's me. Viciously, with full intention, he hurled his spear at Ralph. And you see, of course, this murderous desire. Well, I want to throw one thing out before we move on to in the very beginning of this chapter. They Ralph confronts Jack and calls him a thief. And Jack is indignant and angry about that because he told him exactly what he was. Well, why do you think it bothers him that he doesn't want to be a thief? Well, it's really interesting that that this is a, a common behavior in people when they're confronted with things that they do wrong. They just do not want to accept it. It's very interesting if you ever watch the uh, the interviews of people who are convicted criminals. Uh, almost every single one of them will claim that they're innocent or that they intended to do good, or they were misunderstood. Very rarely will you see somebody say, yeah, I'm really bad, and I did that on purpose. Well, and we hadn't brought this up, but Jack had gone to a lot of trouble in this chapter uh, to tell the other kids that they hadn't killed Simon. Yes. He was was gaslighting again. He was creating an alternate reality for them. He said, no, the, the beast isn't dead. The beast is still out here. You need me to protect you. We could come back. And everyone listened to him for a while, and then they're like, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Like, they just kind of believed him. Right. The groupthink sits in. Uh, the groupthink is the whole idea that uh, that harmony with a group is more important than individual differences. And so some of them might question what the reality was, but they thought, well, I need to keep that to myself so I don't become a victim of the group. And, of course... When you get to chapter 12, when I'm reading this, I find myself reading faster and faster. This is the chase, the final hunt. It's very well written, very exciting. It is very exciting. But bottom line, Ralph is alone and wounded. He's running. They're going to catch him. They make Sam and Eric. They take Sam and Eric hostage, and they make them join uh, their side. And, of course... um, they don't want to, but they end up acquiescing. They kind of look like they're going to help uh, Ralph, but then they don't. They're they're part of the tribe. And they eventually betray him. They eventually do betray him. So Ralph realizes he's alone, and there's a great quote where he says, but 
But then the fatal, unreasoning knowledge came to him again. The breaking of the conch and the deaths of Piggy and Simon lay over the island like a vapor. Those painted savages would go further and further. Then there was that indefinable connection between himself and Jack, who therefore would never let him alone. Never. Ralph understands he's a marked man, that he has to die, that there's no other option at this point. And of course, when he runs away, he goes right past the beast, the pig's skull, and it grins at him from the top of the stick, the skull that gleamed as white as ever, the conch had, as ever the conch had done, and seemed to jeer at him cynically. The skull regarded Ralph like one who knows all the answers and won't tell. A sick fear and rage swept him. Fiercely, he hit hit out at the filthy thing in front of him that bobbed like a toy and came back, still grinning into his face so that he lashed and cried out in loathing. Of course, that's the beast. <laughs> yes, still mocking him. And then it goes on to, to talk about the uh, betrayal of Sam and Eric. And there's a, a line that I like where he says, Ralph put his head down on his forearms and accepted this new fact like a wound. Sam and Eric were part of the tribe now. They were guarding the castle rock against him. Sam and Eric were savages like the rest. Piggy was dead and the conch smashed to powder. So the whole pre-existing world is now gone and he's in a new world order and it's very dangerous. And he goes up to Sam and Eric and he tries to talk to them. And it's interesting that they have this very abbreviated conversation. Can I told you that the dialogue at the end of the book is, is very monosyllabic. It's a tribe. They made us. We couldn't help it. Duh, yes. duh, duh. This caveman style type uh, of, of talking. And of course, uh, they find out that Roger has made a spear mm-hmm. and it's kind of creepy. Uh, it's he, he sharpened it at both ends. When I read it at first, I didn't really understand what he was talking about. But, uh, but it, then you remembered the pig's head from earlier. And it dawns on you that they're going to decapitate Ralph. Yes, and it's brutal. And in this secret conversation with Sam and Eric, Sam and Eric said, they're going to hunt you tomorrow. They Yes. So it's on. It's on. Roger sharpened a stick at both ends. He sharpened a stick at both ends. Uh, he sharpened... I mean, they say this again. What's it mean? A, sh- a stick sharpened at both ends. Uh, they're going to smoke him out. There's nothing that they can do. And, of course, he runs uh, to the beach. But he does tell Sam and Eric where he plans to hide. Yeah, Fatal mistake. But what? I don't know that it would have mattered at this point, but that's true. So th- they smoke him out uh, and set the island on fire, which is really stupid. It's their entire... Uh, It's their entire cosmos. It is. And Ralph recognizes the fruit trees are on fire in the midst of all this. And even he can't believe the self-destructiveness going on. Well, and the pigs that they think they're going to eat and the little ones. And that's where I think you kind of get into this philosophical, this thing where the political crosses over with the philosophical. Man destroys himself. This is the apocalypse that we're witnessing. And he does it on purpose. And I would like to point out that this apocalyptic theme was so common in books of the 1950s. It's in a lot of stories. It just was pervasive in the psyche of people living in that decade. I can see why. Because they kept we kept trying to blow the world up. Well, you know, we killed 262 million people. There are nuclear weapons, uh, a spiraling, escalating Cold War. Yeah. And so we see this... 
this convergence of um, the political argument hitting the theological and personal argument to where we're going to blow the world up, then what are we going to have left? How are we not having any foresight? He's going to say the fools, the fools, the fire. Uh, and of course, he runs and he runs and he runs. Uh, and they get to the beach and all of a sudden, boom, a naval officer stood on the sand. <laughs> Out of nowhere. And that's kind of where the the book kind of takes this um, catharsis turn because you know it's over. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the naval officer is going to say, oh, fun and games. Such irony. Uh-huh, because yes. it's the ac- exact opposite of fun and games. And then he says, just like... Coral Island. Coral Island. This so this officer assumes they've just had a jolly good time. <laughs> and of course, the other boys uh, start coming out two by two. And this is literally the last page. He asks him who's in charge uh, here. A little boy who wore the remains of an extraordinary black cap on his red head and who carried the remains of a pair of spectacles at his waist started forward then changed his mind and stood still. What are we supposed to make of that? I thought it was so interesting that real authority shows up and the totalitarian leader cowered in front of real authority. Yeah, he's definitely a weakling and a little boy now. Uh, The island, of course, is scorched up like dead wood. Simon was dead. And then, of course, the tears begin to flow and the sobs come out. And Ralph starts crying uncontrollably. And then all the other boys follow suit. Whatever terrible magic spell had held them in the grip and made them become savages was broken. And they were coming to this super disturbing realization. And uh, that's tied up in one of the last lines of the book, which is... Ralph wept for the end of innocence, the darkness of man's heart, and the fall through the air of the true, wise friend called Piggy. And of course, there's a lot there. Um, What's Golding saying? Well, politically, what's he saying? An inefficient democracy, as weak and inefficient as it may feel, is really the only answer to totalitarianism. Those are the only two choices. Well, what goes along with that, too, is this whole idea. um, When Hitler is amassing power in 1930s Germany, one of the things that he rails against is democracy. He says it's a terrible uh, form of government, and it had been forced upon the German people because of the Versailles Treaty at the end of World War I. And so he openly disdained democracy as the worst of all forms of government. And points out that totalitarian leaders gain control by making all these overarching promises, mostly of fun and provision. I'm going to give you this. You're going to have free stuff. It's going to be fun. I'm going to keep the fire going. All you have to do is give me power, make me in control, and I'll be benevolent. Uh, but as soon as these kinds of people get total control, uh, there's this immediate shift to violence. And we saw that uh, turn with Jack almost immediately. Not only is there a turn to violence, but there's this turn to worship. You have to worship me in a way that you wouldn't have done under a democracy. And the question that I think Golding asks, and this is where the political meets the psychological and maybe theological, is why does that happen? Why can't we have a benevolent dictator? Why is there no such 
animal. And that's where you get into the very nature of man himself impedes it. Right. And man has been on this earth long enough and experimented with enough forms of government and wrecked all of them to prove that we cannot answer that question. No, but there does seem to be a malevolence in the heart of man that comes out and it can't be contained. And and what does contain it? You see it being contained only at the end. Uh, Civilization contained it. Uh, And then this optimistic idea, maybe it's optimistic. I mean, they are getting on a warship to go back to the world of war. (laughs) Some irony there. (laughs) But they're weeping for the loss of innocence. And although that seems kind of sad, it also seems a bit hopeful. It, it is. And that's what I, at the beginning of the podcast, I talked about not being such a fan of that whole idea of the loss of innocence, because um, what does that actually mean? Does it mean you're waking up to your true self? I think it does mean that. I mean, at the beginning, they were very innocent. They were very naive. They were, mm-hmm. weren't aware. They didn't even realize that they'd been lost on an island at all. And self-orbiting. And they have this awakening that occurred over the course of the time that they were there. But at the same time as Ralph is waking up, this evil is also emerging. Right. And if you uh, uh, like the psychology of Carl Jung, when he talks about the shadow, he says that's essential. You have to look into the depths of what the bad things you're capable of and master the shadow. And the shadow, of course, he says, goes all the way to hell, meaning that there's something in every person Even Ralph, he killed Simon that went all the way to hell. Is it possible that the suggestion is if you know it, there's the hope? I don't know if that's what Golding was trying to say, but Golding loves to leave this whole entire work on a very dark note. (laughs) He does, and we can't answer it. He presents the problem. I don't know that he is going to suggest that there is an answer. We're still around. It's Mm. been... 50 years, so we've done something. Hopefully we can continue to evolve in the right direction as we march into the 21st century. Hopefully so. So on that note, are we going to wrap it up? Let's wrap up Lord of the Flies. We've been on the island a long time. I know, and it's heavy and it's deep, and I'm ready for some lightness. All right, well, that concludes our time on the island with Lord of the Flies If um, you enjoyed being along with us for this trip, then please follow us on Instagram, on Facebook. Be our friend. We like your your friendship. Come visit us at the website. Yes. Come find us on howtolovelitpodcast.com. We have teaching materials that teachers can use in the classroom. We have things there that if if English is your second language, it's going to help you follow along on these podcasts. Feel free to leave a comment. And until next time, peace out. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello 
Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm-hmm. 